My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders, and it's a privilege to be here with you. This morning, we are considering what the book of Proverbs says about the topic of wealth. It turns out this is a topic about which Proverbs has quite a lot to say. The struggle for many Christians is that our thinking about wealth is often shaped by influences outside of the Bible. Sometimes we're shaped by materialism and the American dream. And sometimes we react to such materialism with a rejection of worldly wealth that seems spiritual, but we do that, we reject it in a, in a way that's clearly labeled by the New Testament authors as irreverent, silly myths, and even the teachings of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Sometimes we simply allow fear and unbelief toward the future to reign supreme. And such fear and unbelief lead us away from our hope in God and our assurance of eternal life. Now, the book of Proverbs says some remarkable things on the topic of wealth. And if we believe God's word to be both true and profitable, we must grapple with what we find here. So, having surveyed more than 50 verses in the book of Proverbs on the topic of wealth, I would like to organize the teaching of this book under five misconceptions we often adopt that you can see on your outline. At the heart of each of these misconceptions is an overarching question. Will we use our wealth to serve people? Or will we use people to serve our acquisition of wealth? God expects his children to use wealth to serve people. But too often we get that backwards and we use people to serve our acquisition of wealth. Or we reject wealth in such a way that we are no longer able to serve people the way God wants us to. These errors of reversal could manifest in many ways, but Proverbs particularly tackles five of them. Wealth and people are straightforward realities of life on earth. The question is, which one of them will serve and which one will be served. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Lord, please help us as we grapple with these uh, difficult things in your word, things that are so easy to get backwards. And Lord, we've, uh, we've learned in Proverbs that wisdom is of far greater value than wealth. Help us to keep wealth in its place, but to understand what value and role you assign to it. Help us to love you and fill us with your spirit now that we might understand what your scriptures have to say. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The first misconception addressed in Proverbs is that wealth will make all my problems go away. Wealth will make all my problems go away. 
This is frankly the lie I am most tempted to believe. And perhaps I'm not the only one. I have wrestled year after year with my personal budget. Are we saving enough? Are we giving enough? I have wrestled with the funding for my campus ministry work. I have wrestled with the costs of a growing family, the costs of teenagers soon learning to drive and then beginning to drive. I've struggled with looking to college costs and the current rate of inflation. And I often set my hope in finding a single generous benefactor to solve all my financial needs immediately. You know what we really need is to get an unexpected inheritance from a long-lost extended relative, no one too close to us, but who wants to give us a lot of their stuff. (laughs) Or something, right? Because if we had more wealth, all of our problems would disappear. Or so it seems. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Friends, according to the Bible, there is a problem that every one of us have that is far greater than we can imagine. That problem is that we will die. And God's wrath against sin is real. And my kids' college tuition and my retirement package just won't be able to pay for those things. Riches will not profit in the day of wrath. Only one thing can deliver us from death. And that thing is righteousness which is a big religious word that simply means the state of being right with God. A righteous person is one who has secured the favor and the acceptance of God. And so, of course, this raises an immediate issue. How can anybody do that? The Bible teaches that none of us is righteous. And that fact is evidenced in my own life by how often I start to think that riches will profit me in the day of wrath. Because we do not have any righteousness of our own. We need the righteousness of another. We need to get attached to someone who does have righteousness, someone who has secured the favor and acceptance of God. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for our sin. And God the Father declared him righteous by raising him from the dead. So Jesus can profit you in the day of wrath. But sadly, riches cannot. Riches cannot solve the greatest problem we all have. So why would we even think that riches can solve all of our other problems if it can't solve the biggest problem? Look at chapter 11, verse 28. 
Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. See, there is hope here in this verse. Would you like to flourish like a green leaf with vitality and nourishment and life? If so, you cannot do that with or from riches. Only from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So wealth will not make all of our problems go away. However, this might feel like a sharp turn, but we need to understand that that does not make wealth irrelevant. Because Proverbs teaches that while wealth can't relieve your problems, it just might help relieve other people's problems. Look at chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Friends, the world is filled with the suffering poor, and the Lord hands out wealth to his people so they can help to relieve such suffering. And look closely at what this verse says. This is incredible. When you are generous with the poor, just like Jesus was generous to you, God places himself in your debt. (sighs) By giving to the poor, you have granted a loan to the Lord, which he promises to pay back in spades. The Lord will repay the generous person for their deed. Jesus said exactly the same thing when he told a parable about sheep and goats in Matthew chapter 25. Though Jesus narrowed it down a little bit, he wasn't talking about all of the poor. He said that when you are generous with poor Christians, you have been generous to Jesus. When you feed them, you are feeding him. When you clothe them, you are clothing him. When you visit and care for them, you visit and care for him. He says at the end of this parable in Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That's Matthew 25, Verse 40. So wealth will not make your problems go away, but you can use it to help make other people's problems go away. Especially other members of Christ's church around the world. And when you do that, the Lord will repay his debt to you at a phenomenal interest rate. We cannot use people to serve our wealth But we can use our wealth to serve people. Wealth will not make our problems go away. The second misconception about wealth is that I can tell who has it and who doesn't. I can tell who has it and who doesn't. 
This misconception follows from the last because if you can't use wealth to make your own problems go away, but you can use it to help alleviate the problems of others, then it is simply a fact of life that as Proverbs 19.6 says, many seek the favor of a generous man and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. This is one of the main reasons that any community, including a church, can struggle with prejudice and favoritism. We tend to favor those whom we think are able to help us achieve our interests. And we tend to exclude those that we think will not help us to achieve our interests. That means that in most societies, people are looking for benefactors. They are looking in part for friends who can help them in a pinch. And therefore, many people will gravitate toward those with an appearance of wealth. But such appearances can be deceiving. Look at Proverbs 13, verse 7. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. There's a lot of pretending here. How is it that one can pretend to be rich or pretend to be poor? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You see, those who appear to be rich appear that way for a reason. Often it's because they hold on to their stuff for themselves. They withhold what they could give and they suffer for it. And it would knock your socks off to find out which of your acquaintances are the most generous with their wealth. Because they are so generous, they keep very little for themselves to flaunt. And they never seem to be in great need, but surprisingly, as this verse says, they grow all the richer. I have been a campus missionary for almost 24 years now. And one critical aspect of my job is to raise funds for the ministry to cover the cost of my position within the ministry. And over the last 24 years, I have been surprised over and over again by people. I don't know why I'm still surprised, but I still am. Those whom I think could give generously often do not. I think they can because they look like they can. They have lots of stuff. They have the latest gear. They have beautiful homes and cars and so on. And often those whom I am afraid to ask to give because they don't live like they've got lots of loads of reserves stored up. Those are the people who surprise me and sometimes write checks in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. This is not an exact science. I am not saying that appearances are always the exact opposite of the truth. I am simply saying that you can't tell who, among Christians at least, those who believe God's word, who has the most wealth by looking at their lifestyle. 
Just because someone has a really nice house or an electric car doesn't mean they are any wealthier than you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they will be very generous with you in your time of need. So do not decide whom to be friends with based on how wealthy someone looks. This is one reason why we must not show favoritism in church to those who come in with fancy clothes and expensive jewelry or technology. Favoritism based on appearances is evil and unjust and it's just plain stupid when you realize that people often make use of appearances to deceive and hide the truth. It's far more important for us to recognize how the fact that God created every one of us dramatically levels the field and brings us together. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. See, we're all in the same place before the Lord. One last thing about appearances before we move on is that people made this very mistake with Jesus when he walked the earth. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was born into a poor family in a backwoods village in the middle of nowhere. Those in power, those who had all the wealth, could not believe that God was at work in such an uneducated and dilapidated preacher. But Jesus' poverty was the very mechanism for generously providing riches to the world. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And friends, if the spiritual forces of wickedness had known what Jesus was up to, they never would have crucified him. They fell for appearances. And in so doing, they fell right into his hands to accomplish his will by killing him to rescue the world. So wealth will not make all your problems go away, but it can help make others' problems go away. So we need to be careful. We cannot tell who has wealth and who doesn't just by looking at them. What we need to look for in noble friends is not their net worth, but their eagerness to serve others. Is this person using their wealth to serve people, or are they just using people to serve their wealth? For both of these reasons, we need to consider a third misconception about wealth, which is that wealth is something I ought to feel guilty about. <clears throat> this one has been a really big deal for a few generations now. The Bible does extend some serious warnings to the wealthy since it is so easy to transfer my allegiance from God to my investment portfolio. Anyone who comes close to wealth ought to be sobered by it and be wary of it. Wealth is perhaps something of a hot potato or a ticking time bomb. It will burn you if you hold on to it for too long. It cannot pay for your soul when you face the judgment. 
The problem, however, is that though everything I just said is true, we sometimes take those truths and turn them into guilt trips as though God wants us to be poor, as though it's unchristian to have access to wealth, as though one ought to be ashamed of themselves if God has blessed them in material ways. So some people romanticize monasteries and vows of poverty, or they apply guilt over the fact that someone buys a house to live in with their family instead of going overseas to live in a hut and preach in a jungle to the unreached. And I think that preaching in a jungle to unreached people groups is a crucial part of our Christian mission. So please don't hear me criticizing missions in any way. But I do think it is inappropriate to try to persuade people toward missions in the name of shame and guilt over temporal blessings. This is not wise. And it is not an attitude of gratitude for God's good gifts. Why do I say that? Because look at Proverbs 10 verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. God does not promise to make every one of his children wealthy here on earth, but he does bless some people with wealth. And he blesses a few of those people with a lot of wealth. He doesn't do this because they are any more valuable to him than other people, and he doesn't do it to make their lives easy or pain-free. Remember point one, wealth cannot make your problems go away. But he does do it. And according to Proverbs 10, verse 22, he adds no sorrow to it. He entrusts some of his followers with one bag of gold and some with five bags of gold and some with ten bags of gold. All of them are called to be stewards and to invest the Lord's funds in the Lord's people. Often, wealth is not simply a random gift of God given for no reason. Sometimes it's simply the fruit of living a life of wisdom. Look at chapter 15, verse 6. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. And look at chapter 21, verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling but a foolish man devours it. You see, there are some people whose homes have no treasure in them because the people in that home have devoured all their treasure for selfish ends. Excuse me. But when one is wise and sees all this stuff as not mine, but the Lord's, there's a real motivation to collect more of it, and put it to good use. So the Bible does not lay a guilt trip on wealthy people for their wealth. What it does is it condemns in the strongest terms those, even in the church, who use up people for the sake of their wealth. That's what gets condemned. For the sake of balance, look at James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5. Come now, you rich. 
Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is a dramatic Warning to which we must pay closer heed. But this warning is not the same thing as saying, you people have so much more wealth than people in other parts of the world and shame on you for it. Friends, wealth is not something to inspire guilt, but something to inspire gratitude so that we might seek God's face for how to use that wealth for the good of others and not only for ourselves. So if wealth is not a bad thing in itself, does that mean that we're right to acquire more of it by any means possible? Of course not. Misconception number four is that it doesn't matter how I get my wealth. Ryan covered this point when he preached on diligence a few weeks ago, so I want only to hit some high points to show the direct connection to wealth. Look at chapter 10 of Proverbs, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And that second line, we heard that one before. In another proverb, if you acquire your wealth through wickedness, it will not profit you. Death is coming. You won't be ready for it. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Okay, your hope is not in winning the lottery. That will dwindle. My freshman year college roommate had a goal to become a millionaire and retire by age 30. He and I did not get along very well, so I'm not in touch with him. I have no idea whether he achieved that goal when we were 30. But such a goal is a foolish and a vain thing. It will not last. Presuming the retirement is for yourself so you can live a life of ease. If you want to retire independently wealthy so you can do more service to the Lord and be able to dole it out, then please have at it. Keep serving the Lord. What this verse says is slow and steady wins the race. This point was driven home to me one year, a a number of years back, when Aaron and I had some work done on our wills, our our last will, will and testament, The lawyer who revised the wills for us needed access to our financial records to know how to account for the variety of assets. And that lawyer said something shocking to me. Aaron and I were a couple of campus missionaries making a whopping $45,000 a year at the time. And this lawyer said that we were in better financial shape than he was. 
This guy had the life and the look of a lawyer. His car was way better than ours. Way better. But we owned our car. And he didn't. We were done with our school loans. He still had a very long way to go on his. And we had a modest amount of capital in our house at the time. We were not and we still are not millionaires, but we were working little by little to honor the Lord in small decisions. We were committed to avoiding all commercial debt. We weren't going to use credit cards to spend money we didn't have. We wanted to spend within our means, give as generously as possible, and save for the future. And little by little, the Lord got us to that point where this lawyer said, this lawyer said, you're in better shape than I am. I am not saying that I am the perfect example of financial management to be followed. Many people in this church are wiser with resources than I am. But the Lord has been very good to reward our commitments to live for Him and to use our stuff whenever possible to serve His people. This is not about being a penny pincher either or being a miser with your money. Sometimes Christians elevate frugalness above all things. We can be very frugal and yet still be very selfish. Look at chapter 28, verse 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So what you use and what you serve makes all the difference. Do you use your wealth to serve people or do you use people to serve your wealth? When you answer that question correctly, you should be able to see right through the final misconception this morning. Number five it is this, that it doesn't matter whether someone has wealth or not. It just doesn't matter. Let's not pay attention to it. Have you ever been tempted to just throw your hands in the air and give up? Money matters. Finances can be so stressful and so disheartening. Why even bother? Why not conclude that it just doesn't matter? Wouldn't it be a more faith-filled and a more spirit-filled way of living to say, you know what? I don't care about money or wealth. I'm just not going to pursue it or think about it. God knows what I need. So I'll just let go of the issue and let him provide whatever I need when I need it. And dear friends, if that is how you are inclined to view this topic, you may have missed the point of what the scripture says thus far. Wealth cannot make your problems go away, but it can provide relief for others' problems. It matters. You can't tell who has wealth and who doesn't because those who are wise with their wealth make use of it to serve others and not themselves. And so it matters. You don't have to feel guilty about wealth because God gives it out generously to those who, like him, will give it out generously to relieve the suffering of others. And so it matters. And it does matter how you get it, not hastily and not on the backs of those you beat down or abuse, but little by little through one faithful decision after another. So the answer ought to be obvious by now. Does it matter whether someone has wealth or not? Of course it matters. 
Wealth matters because we are real people with real bodies in a real world filled with real suffering. Wealth can dramatically affect the quality of someone's life. And that is the very reason why the Bible cares so much about the poor. Christians are to care for the poor. Not because it's better to be poor, but because it's better not to be poor. And God gives his people wealth to relieve the poor. You might think it doesn't matter whether you have wealth or not, but God says it does matter. God wants you to make friends with the people around you so you can win them to Christ. And there's an easy way to win friends in this world. Look at chapter 14, verse 20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. You might think it doesn't matter whether you have wealth or not, but such foolishness is what leads people to pay little attention to their budget or their spending, and that often leads them to go deeper into debt in order to survive, and such debt is like having to serve another master in addition to the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. See, borrowing debt is a form of slavery. But in the end, the claim that it doesn't matter whether we have wealth or not is a naive and immature way of viewing the world. The prayer of the righteous person, the prayer of the wise person, does not reflect a lack of concern toward wealth. Instead, it reflects a deep awareness of wealth. Not a desire for wealth above all things, but an awareness of wealth. Wisdom recognizes the close connection between one's wealth and one's walk with God. Look at chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. The prayer of the wise man is this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying That first prayer is pretty straightforward. He doesn't need to explain it anymore. But the second one he goes off on. Second request. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, the prayer that emanates from a wise and righteous heart toward wealth is not a request to take all the wealth away. Nor is it a request to give all the wealth to remove my problems. Nor is it a request to make me just forget wealth altogether. The wise and righteous prayer is a prayer for plenty. A prayer for whatever God deems sufficient. If I get too much, I will be tempted to deny the Lord and trust in my wealth. And if I get too little, I will be tempted to violate God's righteous standards and profane his name just to survive. 
So what we must infer is that if it doesn't matter whether someone has riches or not, then it also doesn't matter whether the Lord Jesus has riches or not. And that simply flies in the face of all that the New Testament teaches. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul declares that Jesus alone is the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when we are attached to him by our faith, his treasures become ours and we gain all the riches of full assurance and understanding. That's in Colossians 2 verses 1 through 4, which clarify that it really does matter whether someone has wealth or not because Jesus better have it in order to dole it out. Especially the wealth of righteousness, the wealth that matters most to God. The Lord Jesus used his immeasurable riches to serve us and to bring us into his kingdom. Now he gives us the opportunity to continue that work ourselves. But we can only do this if we have an acute awareness of wealth and its power to serve others. So in conclusion, does your wealth serve people? Or do you expect people to serve your wealth? Which will it be this week and beyond? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You do not need our wealth, our offerings, our contributions. And yet, Lord, you have said that you voluntarily place yourself in debt to those who are generous with the poor. Lord, you are amazing and you have been so generous with us. Oh, Lord Jesus, you gave up the riches of heaven to become poor, that we, through your poverty, might become rich in you. Please, reshape our thinking. Give us a view of the world that matches your view of the world, especially our view of wealth. And may we be good stewards. May we not flaunt it or hang on to it for ourselves, but put it to work to serve our families, our neighbors, our church, the poor around the world, especially those of the household of faith. Lord, please help us to honor you in all things, especially in this critical area. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.